Good morning, church. Oh, come on. It's August. Good morning, church. And we've had rain a lot. Praise the Lord for that, huh? It's, it's awesome. Uh, I know that several people are taking their young people to college this weekend. Has school started here yet? Tomorrow? You guys look so excited. I've never seen such excitement for school starting. That's wonderful. Wake up, wake up, wake up. All right. That's great. That's great. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, Brother John began a series in 1 Thessalonians. That's in the New Testament toward the kind of middle of the end. And uh, I want to continue that with him. And we'll be tag-teaming a little bit on the themes out of 1 Thessalonians. But first of all, I want to pose five questions to you this morning. The first question is this on the screen. How did you... Not again. Jesus, help me. Amen. Uh, How did you see God at work in your life this week? You might want to write these down in your Bible. They're in front of my Bible right here. They stay with me all the time. How did you see God at work in your life this week? Second question is, what is God teaching you in his word this week? These questions assume some things you know. Number three, we'll come back to these at the end. What conversations are you having with pre-Christian people? It's interesting phraseology, isn't it? Pre-Christian people. Number... um, Four, what good can we do around here and how can we include some of our neighbors in on it? And number five, how can we help each other in prayer? I'll make sure those get in the bulletin for next week if you missed them. We'll come back to them at the end. First Thessalonians chapter 1, if you will. Beginning in verse 4, For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that he has chosen you, because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of people we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for in spite of persecution you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place where your faith in God has become known, so I have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. Let's pray. Father, when we read this passage, there is such energy and life and passion and clarity. May we live likewise. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Dr. Scott Mamaday is a full-blood Kiowa Indian born in Lawton, Oklahoma. He's 83 years old now. He taught at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He had a Ph.D., English Literature and Humanities. 
He taught at the University of New Mexico. He taught at Berkeley. He does PhD from Stanford. He was awarded by President George Bush II, the Medal of Arts. He is an incredible teacher. In one of his books, he describes his life as a Kiowa Indian, born on a reservation in Lawton, Oklahoma. He says, when I was a boy, I knew I was Indian, but one day my father took me out in the country to the old woman's house. So in an old beat-up pickup, we rounded the corner, went up the hill to a small little frame house in southwest Oklahoma. And he said, son, you'll spend the day with the old one. My father got into the pickup and left. And as a young boy, I sat and listened to the old one. She told the stories of how her tribe came from the plains, how they endured the winters, how they buried their people. She told the stories of saying the songs of the Kiowa. She sang the songs of funerals and of weddings and ceremonies, and she prayed the prayers of the Kiowas. She told me about the migration from the plains all the way to Lawton, Oklahoma, to live on a reservation, about the struggle with their own dignity as a people being put on a reservation. We had lunch. She continued to talk, this old one, about the stories of the Kiowa. As the sun was setting that day, I saw my father's truck come over the hill. She escorted me to the porch. I got in the truck and I left. And I realized what had happened to me that day. I knew I was born a Kiowa Indian. But it wasn't until I heard the stories and understood the journey and listen to the songs and listen to her voice and saw her tears and heard the pathos in her spirit. It wasn't until then that I realized I came as a young boy and I left as a Kiowa. Folks, that's the gospel. That's the gospel of Christ. It's the story. It's the story of God. It's the story of the gospel. It's about identity. This young man knew he was a Kiowa, but he didn't understand all that meant to be a Kiowa until he heard the story. Until he heard the story from the old one. And he saw the tears in her eyes and he heard the, the, the joy in her voice. And he came as a young man, knowing he was Kiowa, but he left a full Kiowa because he embraced and understood and heard the story. That's the gospel, folks. 
You can know a lot of Bible. You can be a good person. But what is it that animates your life? What is it that grabs your soul? What is it that gets so deep in your spirit that it just shapes everything about you? Thessalonica was a seaport city in the first century, about 200,000 people. It was a crossroads culture. Had lots of pagans, idols, lots of things from all around the world. Thessalonica was such a significant seaport city in the first century that the capital of the known world at the time was Constantinople. Can he say the word? And they'd given serious consideration to making Thessalonica the center capital of the world. It was that important of a place. And when Paul originally came there, he was only there three weeks. Three weeks. He shares the gospel. People come to know Christ. The city continued to be like it was. The idols continued to be present. He was there three weeks. He gets run out of the city. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're with him. And he writes these, this letter, probably his first letter, around A.D. 50. And you think, what do people who have not known the gospel very long or known God very long, the God of Scripture, what do they really need? Well, they need reassurance about who they are and what decision they made to follow Christ. So it reminds them that because of their deep commitment and because they've embraced this story of Jesus Christ, they now have a new identity. And he mentions that they turn from idols to serve a living God, not just a dead God in a form of an idol. And there's plenty of idols around Thessalonica. What do, young, what do people need that are young Christians? They need to know that they've made the right decision. They need reassurance. They need comfort. They need prayer. They need a reminder of what they've done and where they're headed and what drives their life. So you know what drives their life? We call it the eschaton. We get the subject of eschatology in it. It means the last things, the end times. If you'll notice verse 10 of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, it says... They, they are to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescued us from the wrath that is coming. What drives the New Testament is the eschaton. What drives the New Testament is the subject of eschatology. You take eschatology out and you just kind of float around until the end comes. But when the end comes, there's going to be a change. When the, everything's headed, it's not circular, it's headed in God's direction. And what they understood was this gospel that we receive, we didn't receive it, it's just words like another philosopher in town. We received it with full conviction. We received it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice the language that he uses here. Our message of the gospel came to you not only in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit. There's something going on beyond themselves because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's full conviction. When these, young, when these people that are new Christians made a decision to follow Christ, it was a complete decision, and it ordered everything in their life. Everything. Notice the text. You know what kind of people we prove to be among you for your sake. What's Paul doing? You became imitators of us. Now, Macedonia and Achaia, basically, we're talking about Greece. We're talking about Greece. 
You became imitators of us. Imitators. You know how we lived among you. Paul says, look at the gospel we model. Look at what's orienting our life. When I read this text, it becomes apparent to me that what's present is passion. What's present is something that's alive and something dynamic and something that's being lived in and through the people. So here's the question out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. How's the word been sounded forth at Lamar Avenue the last five years? Who's come to Christ in this town because of your witness, your passion, your life, your energy, your gospel life? Who's, who's done it? That popping's driving you crazy? I'll be John Cannon for a few moments. I don't have as many guns as he has. Never will. I'm a real Christian. I'm just jealous. That's all there is to it. So the central question out of this text this morning is, How's the word been sounded forth? Because there's some synonyms in chapter 1, and it all says gospel. If you look at the text, our message of the gospel, there's the word message, there's the word gospel. There's, you receive the word with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit. Something radical changed in their life. This wasn't church as usual. This wasn't just something that, well, let's go to church today and go home, take a nap, do a little yard work. We'll wait till next Sunday, see if the preacher's interesting or not. No, no, no. There's something that shaped them, something that gave them life, something that oriented them, something that motivated them. Paul was only there three weeks with these people, folks. Three weeks. Three weeks. That's it. What Paul's concerned about is, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. So there's this large pyramid. And this pyramid, the base of it is verse 4 following. The middle part of it is mentioning you in prayer. And the top part is we give thanksgiving for you. Thanksgiving, rem remembering you in prayer. And we know. What do we know? We know that you are living a certain way because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's passion. There's life. There's energy. Who in the world is sharing their faith in this church? I'm not asking you to be obnoxious like I am. I'm not asking you to be wise like John. I'm not asking you to be something you're not. What's driving you in your life? That's the question. What orients your life? What do you wake up thinking about? Someone told me a long time ago, whatever you're losing sleep about is really what's going on with your spirituality. If you want to know what's going on in your spirituality, what are you losing sleep over? That's the point where God needs to meet you and the point where your faith needs to show up. You see, he told them, and John talked about a healthy church last week. He talked about a healthy church. It's not always the signs of big numbers. It's not always the signs of, of all the stats that we talk about. How many were at church today? What's the contribution today? Those are the measures of a church. Yeah, 
The real measure of a church is faith, hope, love. The real measure of church is grace, mercy, peace. The real measure of church is the gospel of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the power. The measure of a church is a transformed life in Jesus Christ. Who can walk in here and feel energy and life and joy in the Holy Spirit? Nobody fills my heart like Jesus. Well, there are four, five of us clapping, I think. Well, you know, clapping, we just don't do here that in Lamar Avenue. And I'm just not comfortable. So it is about you. It's not about the gospel. I'm going home. I can say that. John can't. I mean, seriously. What is ordering our lives? Years ago, and John knows this man, Holland Boring Jr. He was a preacher, last name Boring. He and his father taught in the Firm Foundation School of Music for years in Austin, Texas, did singing schools all through Texas. Holland was the preacher at the Turnpike Church when I was the youth minister in the early 80s, and he was a good, good man. And he poured his life into me. There was a Dairy Queen right across the street, and we became big in the brotherhood with Dairy Queen, all right? We loved the ice cream, but more than that was the conversations. And he would take me uh, visiting hospitals all around Dallas-Fort Worth. He'd say, what are you doing today, my friend? And I said, well, I've got to prepare for Sunday's lesson. I've got to see some kids after school today. I'm going to a ball game tonight. He said, you got a couple hours? I said, yeah. He said, grab a hymnal. And he knew music, could read music, could sing incredibly well. I love to sing. Grab a hymnal. We're going to visit the hospitals. We'll be gone at least two to three hours. I said, great. And in between hospitals, Methodist and Parkland and all the Presbyterian, all the hospitals we'd visit, he'd say, start at page one in the hymnal. And he said, I'm going to t we're just going to sing all the way to the hospitals, between hospitals and all the way back home. And over about five years, we made it about 250 songs. That was our routine. I learned songs I didn't know. He had a beautiful voice, but here's what he used to say to me. You'll be preaching someday, my friend. I said, oh, I don't know, Holland. I, that scares me to death. I was 24, 25 years old. I, I don't know about that. I mean, I, that, that's a big response. You'll be preaching, trust me. God's given you a gift. You'll be preaching. But let me tell you something. You'll have to work harder being a preacher to reach people with the gospel than you would as a youth minister. Because preachers get bogged down in doing stuff elders want them to do. Preachers get bogged down in running things and answering things that people want. They get bogged down in visiting. They get bogged down in programs. And those are all good. But what you'll find is, being a preacher, it gets very difficult simply to sit down one-on-one -on -one and share the gospel with somebody because your life is so busy doing church. Anybody preached before? Can I get an amen on that? I thought, you know, that, okay, okay. So I started preaching when I was 28 in Austin, Texas. About six months into it, I sat down on a, outside on the, at the building one day in Austin. Before I got in my car, I sat there and I remembered Holland in his words. And he was right. Isn't it ironic that what we saddle preachers with 
keeps us away from the very thing that 1 Thessalonians 1 is about. Building relationships, letting the gospel sink in your life, building relationships with people. If, me, if I, as the preacher, am not sharing the gospel one-on-one and people are not coming to Christ, I know God brings them, I don't always have the choice on that. If I'm not doing it, why in the world should I expect you to do it? 1 Thessalonians 1, look at the words. Power, Holy Spirit, conviction, right kind of people, relationships. This text assumes that they're in relationship with people that I would call pre-Christian. They had some kind of faith in some being. They had some kind of faith in a higher power. But it's the gospel that clarifies who God is. It's the gospel that clarifies who Christ is, right? It's the gospel that is our hope. It's the gospel that causes us to work. It is the gospel. It's good news that shapes out in our church. So what's the measure of a church? Faith, hope, and love, grace, mercy, and peace. And the gospel of Jesus Christ constantly orients us in our lives. So let me come back to this. Who in the world has come to Christ? Literally, who in the world has come to Christ because this church has been so focused on the gospel of Christ it's what drives you. It's what shapes you. It's what you're about. It puts all the other arguments about church, they pale in comparison. Here's what matters. Here's what matters. There's all kinds of ways to do in church. Whether I clap or don't clap. Whether I sing or don't sing. Whether I have a team or don't have a praise team. Whether I do this or not. Whether we meet on Wednesdays or not. Meet on Sunday. Whether we do small groups. There's always something that people are going to disagree about in church. Can I get an amen on that? But what we cannot disagree with is the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own heart and soul that transforms us and people say, there's something different about you. Amen. I was in the foyer after Bible class and saw a friend of mine that's here today. We weren't that close of friends. I won't tell you his name. You're going, wow, okay. But one of the first things he said is, I stayed away from church a long time. I was bitter and angry. I just finished reading back, reading through the Old Testament. I said, God's done a number on you, hadn't he? He said, God's got me again. Thank you, brother, for being here today. What's he talking about? Life's too short to be bitter. What's he talking about? There was a state in his life that had to be transformed. The state of anger and the state of bitterness. And he knows that only the God who gives good news can bring you back and make you who you are. Amen? So, here's the question from 1 Thessalonians 1. If you believe the Lord is coming again and you're waiting for the blessed Savior to be revealed from heaven, what in the world are you doing now? I use my son sometimes. I'm glad he doesn't listen to these sermons anymore. One year coming back from Pepperdine, he said, Dad, is baptism all there is? Driving this middle of New Mexico in the middle of the night in an F-150 that housed, the door didn't quite shut, drove me crazy. I said, what do you mean it's baptism? He said, well, you know, baptism, baptism, baptism. Is that all there is? Because it sure sounds like it when you hear pre preaching. That's all there is? What am I supposed to do now? 
Sometimes we are so baptism and heaven focused, we just kind of relax and hope things get better and somebody else does the work. This group of people were described as people who had a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope. They didn't wait on the preacher. They didn't meet in a building at certain times. They were young Christians and they needed good understanding about God and the gospel and their relationships with this pagan culture they lived in. Now does that sound timely or not? I encourage you this morning to answer the question, starting with your own soul. Where am I in my faith? Where am I in my hope? Where am I in my love? because of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. And I ask you this morning to answer the question, who in the world of Paris, Texas, has come to know Christ because someone has cultivated a relationship? So now we're back to five questions. If we can put them back on the screen, here's what you leave with. This is the practical application. How did you see God at work in your life this week? Who did he bring into your life? What's, what's going on? What are you losing sleep over? What's God pushing you to change and do and rejoice in? Number two, have you been in his word? This, it assumes it. What's God teaching you in his word? What's God teaching you in the word? Number three, what conversations are you having with pre Christian people. Now, I use the phrase pre-Christian, and it's not unique to me. Because sometimes we say, well, they're unchristian, or they're unbelievers. I meet people all the time with a pretty generic belief in God. Don't you? I meet people who are pretty good people by the world's standards. As a matter of fact, I meet people in Rotary and Lions Club and at city council meetings and I pray, have friends in the community and friends in my neighborhood. They're just as good a person morally as anybody sitting in this pew. They're just as good as you. So don't be arrogant about how good you are because you're a church person. But what conversations are you having with pre-Christian people? What skills do you need? What habits do you have of bringing up not this? Hey, I'd like for you to come to church with me. Some people aren't ready to come to church, folks. They're not ready. What they need is you consistent in their life, consistently in their life. But if your pattern in your life is always with us good church folks, who in the world's going to reach them? If your habits and your rhythms and your patterns are always, if you're not praying, if you're not praying for God to open up a door for the gospel, Colossians chapter 4, that's what he asked him to pray about, that a door might be opened. A conversation with people. You can try it today before you leave right here in this room. How you doing? I'm doing fine, pretty good, glad we got some rain. Got to get the field cut. Good for the cows, you know. You doing all right? Yeah, we're fine. We've just been traveling a lot. Change the question. Start with yourself. How are you doing spiritually? Different question. 
It'll stop them in their tracks. You can try it today with a friend of yours. Over lunch, that you usually go with the same people in the same way, at the same place, at the same time. la di da di da di da di da We know how to do that. I'm not saying it's bad. We just are creatures of habit, aren't we? Try it with the people you go to lunch with today. Just ask somebody the question. Look at them right in the eye and say, how are you doing spiritually? That's a lot different than talking about how are you doing. It automatically takes it to a different level. And then you can start having conversations about faith. I'll never forget the day that I asked a person at Mansfield Church of Christ going up the aisle, how are you doing spiritually? And they said, terrible. Is that what you want to hear? And I said, it's honest. For what can I pray about? Well, I don't even know if God's going to answer my prayer or not. So when could I get with you and talk about this? Oh, there's no need to talk about it. You're too busy. That's just putting me off. That's all that does is shifting it away. I said, no, I, I, I want to know. I, I ask. Eventually, we got together. Deep, dark depression over some deep faith struggles in their life. But if I would have never asked the question, she would have just come to the pew, sat, and left for years, possibly. She got better. I learned a lot, had more compassion, and grew closer. Both of us. You can do the question. How are you doing spiritually? Just start right here in your own group, your own friends. It's a different question. I ask teenage boys that. That think they're all that. And they got the whole world ahead of them. How are you doing spiritually? It stops them in the tracks every time. Uh, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. No, uh, tell me. What do you mean? Do I read my Bible? Well, not that much. I, no, I'm, not, I'm just, how are, how are you doing spiritually? What's going on with you? What's driving you? What's eating at you? What are you losing sleep over? Those are the questions of what it means to have faith in God and struggle with this God and embrace this gospel, which leads us to number four. As a church, what good can we do around here? And how can we include some of the very people we're helping to be a part of it? Rather than us running the programs and controlling everything at the building, why don't we consider involving the very people we're helping in to help others so we can build relationships and have opportunities for number three, the conversations? And it all starts with number five, the prayer. I challenge you to pray. Specifically, that God brings someone in your life to have a conversation with, to work alongside in service, to open up a conversation with, so that you can feel much better about yourself in the gospel it will, a lot, it will make your spirit come alive. It will give your spirit life. I have a good friend named Doug Peters. Talked to him last week. He's preaching in the church in Houston. He's a great in this church. I have shared the gospel with and baptized more people in six months than I did at the last church for 17 years, 13 years. I said, what is it? He said, I don't know. 
But I'm telling you, they're, they're just coming out of the woodwork. I'm baptized a whole family. Sit down and talk to them. Let people ask me questions. I said, Doug, what's the difference? He said, I don't know. It's just the grace of God. But I'm having more fun preaching and ministry than I've ever had in my life. I said, why is that? He says, I'm sharing the gospel. I'm watching people change. I'm watching whole families change. It's not just about doing church and arguing about church. I'm really focused for the first time in a long time. And it's not that I didn't do good back then. I, I wanted to, and I did, and there were good people where I was before. But I don't know what it is. There's something. People are coming. And I said, have you been praying? Oh, yeah, I pray every day. God brings somebody in my life. I said, duh, preacher. Who's willing? Who's willing in this church to walk down this aisle this morning? as a sign and a commitment that you're going to start praying for God to come bring somebody in your life that you can serve with and have a conversation with at some point in some way. Who's willing to do that this morning? I travel a lot and I preach a lot. It's harder for me to do. Moved into a new neighborhood, not been there much. But I'll start with me. I'm willing. 